If you want to listen to this episode or any of our episodes ad-free, you can do that now. Head on over to Patreon. Click on the ad-free level. You get all of our bonus shows that you've been hearing so much about. Plus, every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you can listen to this episode or any of our other episodes at the same time, ad-free, over on Patreon. This is David. Welcome back behind the velvet rope. Let's just get right into it today because we are joined by the one, the only, Jay Rodriguez. Last time someone introduced me like that it was at Oscars Palm Springs and they did a big build up and they said, the one, the only, Jay Hernandez. And I was like, oh, that's certainly you got the name right. I got the name. Well, listen, you just had like a cabaret, a mini night residency. It's like a little in- back pocket thing. And I think. I've been performing in Palm Springs a lot and I just did a show this weekend for this big charity pool party for Reef. It's a great charity and they, um, the number one thing people stopped me for afterwards was like, do people know that you're a good singer? Like, I didn't know. And I realized I have not done a good job of spreading that story. When I lived in New York, being in on Broadway or my um, Twisted Cabaret Mondays at Excel, I was just known as the, the Puerto Rican who would like, you know, was like the gay Justin Timberlake at the time. Didn't even occur to me post TV that I needed to do a lot of work to re-educate people about some of the things I did. But I'm about to shock you again. Tell me. You and I share a first name. My legal name is David J. Rodriguez. I don't. I think, well, you were here before, first mm-hmm. of all. You were here in 2020, and I think I learned that maybe when I researched for that interview, but I, I don't remember what I did yesterday, yeah. so now that, but I, I don't think Anytime I knew I that. Anytime I hear the name David. I'm Interesting. Like, oh. yeah. Interesting. And going about back to Palm Springs, the reason why they introduced me as Jay Hernandez was we were just talking about David Hernandez from American Idol, who's also Latin, and I think people we sort of came up around the same time in the in the circuit of live performance, and people would mistake us for one another. Well, even well, I mean, even though we are live here in studio in West Hollywood, where you live and I live part time, yeah, I mean, I came of age as a gay man, gay boy in New York City, so I yeah. remember the Twisted Cabaret oh at Excel gosh. Club. For those of you who don't, it was basically here's this is how much time has changed in. 2000, I want to say in one is when I started, it was at a club in New York City called XL. And it was two stories. And they mostly on this Monday night had singing drag queens or female pop divas with a live band. Cis gay men were not allowed to perform because we were told at that time in history, people will not come to see someone who's not femme presenting just it's not gonna happen and I said I begged the venue and I remember it was Beto and John Blair Beto Suter and John Blair who ran everything in New York at the time and I was like please just give me one night I'm in rent please I can get people and they did and it was two sets of six songs and I would have special guests in each set four-piece band three background singers I would dress like of the time like if Britney and Justin had a baby it was crystallized torn garment it was fun 
And I, I got, I mean, it really just became this, this momentous night. And I think part of that is what got me queer eye, but yeah, it was a wild time. And, and so now when I'm between shows, I, I lean on that kind of storytelling. And so, right, I mean, I guess, because that's the thing, you know, most people know you in the world originally from mm-hmm. Queer Eye, but you had a whole, you know, cabaret oh, in New York, Half Broadway. a decade of, like, being a, an actor, whether it was, and I think about my career, and I'm like, the things, the, the, the shows I was, I was sort of first introduced to was Rent. So you have a multi-ethnic, multi-generational cast with different gender identities and and sexual orientations. Then from there, I left and did a play at Lincoln Center about racism on a college campus, tackling issues like microaggressions and such. Then I played a non-binary character in a musical called Xana Don't. All before Queer Eye, which was culturally impactful for being the first all-out gay cast in network history. And I assumed that those years of my life, which were kind of like eight years if you include Queer Eye, I just thought that was the way the world was. I was in the front of storytelling in a way that was so far ahead of its time that I just, and then when I moved here, it was like culture shock in Los Angeles thinking, well, I was successful on a, I was on a show that was successful, Queer Eye. So I'll just parlay that into this dynamic scripted career because I had half a decade of it before. Nay, nay. Like, I didn't know that it would be a challenge in 2006 when I moved here, being out, being Latin, and having, you know, a pedigree of acting work that was, you know, um, good. I I didn't get the pass. I didn't get the, 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 the golden ticket. I thought Hollywood would be more welcoming. So now in 2023, when I look around and in my opinion, see little baby Jay Rodriguez is thriving. I'm amazed at how far we've come in the 20 years since Queer Eye, where the boxes that people check for diversity, whether it's gender expression, sexual orientation, their ethnicity, their race, those things are being celebrated specifically in ways that allow them to have some commerce in the work that they do. Like they're getting paid, they're getting brand deals, their artistry is being rewarded and their identity is amplified uh, now in a way that it was suppressed back then. Interesting. There's okay. There's so there's much. So there. much. Sorry. I just, no, no, we're just no, starting out just I real mean, strong here. There is so, okay. So, right. So like, do you, did you appreciate like, okay, Xana don't, I mean, even rent, let's take rent for yeah. a minute. You know, Jonathan Larson, like that's that. people's. Well, the wild thing, I was a kid from Long Island. I know you're familiar with Long Island and I didn't have access to things that were happening in the city. It was a dark, wicked place. Grew up very evangelical, born again, Christian, no TV, no secular music style. Right. And I did get accepted to performing arts high school. So 11th and 12th grade was really when I started understanding what was happening in the world at large from my peers in that school. Um, many had big big dreams and college aspirations, I knew pretty much that my family was not going to help out with college, specifically if I went for anything in the arts. So my options were limited. And in May of my senior year, my teachers were like, where are you applying, kid? And I was like, yeah, my mom said she's not supporting me pursuing the arts. So nowhere. I had no college plans. And I remember like a teacher saying, you should audition for Rent, which we had all seen as a class. I snuck out 
Like I, I, I fake my mom's signature to get that pass to go into the city with my class to see Rent. And huh. when I saw Rent, I did not see myself reflected because I didn't know anything about gay people or drag. or. And so when I saw the character of Angel, I was like, that's nice. I'll play Mark, like in my mind. And then that was like probably May. I got my first audition like via an agency like in August. And I was doing the show October 20th. It was my first day of rehearsal. Really wow. being introdu- introduced to things. Um, in 1997 for folks, you know, so I the first half decade of my life, I was playing a drag queen, which is fascinating because of everything that's going on in the world and how drag queens are suddenly a target. Yeah, like you you were ahead of your time with all it's these. wild. I mean, to think about it then when, you know, people were in love with the show and, um, you, you know, I remember folks from all all political persuasions just being in impassioned by the story so many universal themes in rent um and I, I i don't remember a lot of pushback however i do remember a level of fear and safety concerns with you know going out and drag especially in new york you would think it's a safe not in every space is safe and so i i do know there was a shift and drag certainly wasn't celebrated a lot of my drag performers at the time you know it would do it as a side thing and had a real career or a career that made them more money, I should say, was before Drag Race. Um, And now drag has become so mainstream that, of course, it's become an easy target. Yeah. When you got the job on Queer Eye after that, like, did you know, look, no one knew what really Bravo was at the time. For context, Bravo had Inside the Actors Studio as their tentpole show, which was James Lipton interviewing uh, famous actors in front of a class. And um, so when I, I was doing Xana Don't, and if you don't know anything about salaries on Broadway, you make a decent salary on Broadway, but off you do not. I think I was making 400 a week, maybe 398 a week doing Santa Don't. I took six months off of rent to go do this show, and then my intention was to go back to rent. And in the process, I'm auditioning for other things, TV things, hoping I can supplement that $400 a week in New York City paycheck. I moved out of my nice apartment, moved in with friends who had a guest room. I'd open the door and hit the bed. That's how small it was. And I got an audition for Queer Eye. I sat across from a woman like this, and she um, asked me to take her on a romantic date as a divorced dad living on Long Island. What would be our New York City date? And I knew the city like the back of my hand, so I, I, I gave her this flowery description of all the unique things we do, and she loved that. And she said, how old are you? And I said, 23. And she said, you're 27. Where'd you go to school? I was like, I didn't graduate. I went right into rent. She said, you graduated. Give NBC Bravo the same answers tomorrow. I, I went in, there was three chairs, a brightly dressed blonde guy, a gay buddy Holly, and an empty seat. I sat in that one. The board would ask me a question, and these two knuckleheads kept trying to discredit everything I said. I did not know my purpose being there was a chemistry test with two existing cast members, Carson and Ted. No one told me that. So I left like these guys were upstaging me. They were like scene st- like there was no like... So in the middle of the audition, once I felt that, I was like, I'm just going to be comedic and funny and quick-witted so NBC will consider me for a sitcom of the future. That was my logic. Call my agent practically in tears. Said, don't ever send me for anything like that ever again. I was humiliated. An hour later, he calls back and says, guess you didn't do that bad. You start Monday. Wow. And that was it. Like, there was no – and then I remember, you know, the first couple episodes – 
struggling to find my way, I can look at a picture at someone and tell you, you know, how I can improve their hair, their wardrobe, their interior. Uh, that's easy. But how do you amplify someone's culture? And what does that term mean on a broad level, especially with network notes like Jay needs to physically give them something? It had like there was all these stipulations that people didn't know about. And the year was 2003. Yeah. We do the 10 episodes. The last day, we're like, nice to meet you. Yes, yeah, stay in touch. We didn't know it was going to be a hit. We didn't think season two. We were like, nice to meet you. Ted, did, the food guy, didn't even live in New York. Like, he was going back to Chicago. I was like, nice to meet you. Let me know when you're in LA, uh, New York again, you know. Did you push back on, like, Carson and Ted, like, during the Oh, year, I like, sure did, guys, because like, I was like, off? I was like, I will be damned if my big opportunity yeah. in front of network executives is diminished by these two loud mouths. But I love that. Instinctually, I made that choice to be quick-witted back because they started laughing, which showed I can play ball with just about anyone. And I think one of the the key the keys to my longevity, it's almost 26 years in the industry, 25 and a half years, is that I can be a bit of a chameleon and find chemistry or find what you're giving. I can find what to supplement that to make the yin yang work, um, which is why I've been I've had great scene partners like Lily Tomlin and Reba and people that, you know, are all across the spectrum in terms of what they give. I can find what you need to make this scene work. And and I'm thankful for that. But it's really it's honestly just listening and listening and responding to what you're being given, not saying I'm coming in with an agenda and I'm going to do it. No, no. Got to listen and respond to what you're given. I'll admit it. As important as it is for me to eat healthy and put the right nutrients into my body and hydrate, I'm really not great at it. I'm always on the go. I'm never making that a priority and I'm always hungry. This was a real problem until I discovered 310 Nutrition. I love 310 Nutrition's water hydrators. You just add them to water and they make your water taste so much better. They also have refreshing lemonade mixes. My personal favorite, they're all in one shakes. I love their caramel sundae, their vanilla cake, the shamrock cream. I drink one of these shakes and it totally satisfies my hunger. They're low in fat and low carbs, which I love. They also satisfy my carb craving. But don't take my word for it. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code VELVETROPE and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 off your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and it's easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products you know you'll use. Go to 310nutrition.com and use the code VELVETROPE right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310nutrition.com and use code VELVETROPE. I've been telling you guys for a few weeks about these amazing Nebula 9, basically vodka in a can. They're ready to drink cocktails. Then I want to know which is your favorite. Come on, you've had several weeks to try these out, guys. My favorite's the Great Beyond, but I wonder if yours is the same or if you like Moscow Mule, the Pineapple Passion Fruit Paradise, or the Pommy Blue Cosmo better. Forget having to like mix drinks at home or make your own drink. These are literally like you open the can and you drink. And the best thing, each can is equal to two shots of vodka. Of course, drink responsibly, but how great is that? Also, it's the summer and I need to keep my summer body going. So there's no sugar added, which I love. They're made with real fruit juice and the taste is just so damn good. One of the best things for me about the Nebula 9 ready to drink cocktails, they come right to your front door. 
more. You can drink them at home or take them on the go. So listen, order yours at nebula9vodka.com and use promo code VELVET for 10% off your order. You can thank me later. Of course, always drink responsibly. Must be 21 or older to purchase. That's nebula9vodka.com. Use promo code VELVET for 10% off and DM me and let me know what flavor is your favorite. Well, this is why you were chosen as the culture vulture <laughs> and queer eye. Can I tell you, though, you know, with a new queer eye and stuff, I just, I remember when I got the call that that was coming and I, it was from the producer's speakerphone. And if you know anything about a speakerphone situation where it's a conference call and there's multiple voices, that's usually good news. That's usually we're offering you something. So when they said we're bringing queer eye back, I did not let them take a beat. I jumped right in with my Puerto Rican ass and was like, oh my God, this is so amazing because now in my 30s, I have so much more to offer. Because I wanted the moment to somewhat redeem myself from being an early 20-something playing on camera with my colleagues who were a decade older, who had a decade more life experience. And we had fallen into archetypes. I was the younger brother, which meant people could elbow in front of me. They could talk over me. Producers maybe didn't take me that seriously who are story producers. I think they were struggling to figure out what to do with me. And it wasn't until later seasons that I really found my voice because I was like, oh, hell no. You know what I mean? Not that they were doing it maliciously, but the energy. I was younger and I was also very easy to work with, which means if you asked me to do something and I didn't want to do it, I would make it work. I thought I should just play ball. I didn't know I could say, I'm not comfortable with that. That also comes to like fashion and stuff. If I saw a garment on the fat, on the rack of wardrobe, I came from theater. You don't question the costume designer. They're designing a costume for the character. I didn't know or think about the clothes I wear on a reality show, because reality was new, would tell the audience who I am and how I how, and, and elements about my personality. I had no idea. So oftentimes huh. for big things like the cover of Entertainment Weekly, I mean, Carson dressed me. He was dressing us at that time. And it was like, I hated it, you know, and I didn't like it, but I didn't have enough confidence at that time or a strong enough sense of self to say, you know, is there something else? I was also not sample size. The guys were wearing things from from like, you know, samples from designers and they often would have to shop for me like H&M or Century 21 and or sometimes find something that was kind of androgynous from the women's collection because I could fit into that. You know, it was like a size 28 waist or whatever I was when I was 23. And uh, finding your voice and um, learning to take up space was one of the biggest lessons that Carson taught me. Because people look at the show and think, oh, he's a loudmouth, or he's like, Brett, no, he's the kindest, sweetest man who lived in a world that oppressed his voice for so long that he confidently said, you're going to accept me and I'm going to take up space whether you like it or not. And I witnessed him do that. And the audience only saw the positive. I saw behind the scenes pushback, the um, the kind of uh, bias that people would show. And he never backed down from it. You know, he sort of almost forced people to see him. And witnessing that quietly in my early 20s helped me later in life as I grew because now I can do that in a way that's respectable and that really honors who I am. And 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 I think that's about self-worth, but we get so nervous because I was very much like, I'm so thankful to have a job. I don't want to rock the boat, you know? I do. 
Did you, I mean, so did you real? because look, I imagine you weren't paid, like you were going to go back to Broadway, which you, you said you make money on Broadway. Bethany Frankel, shout out to Bethany Frankel, talking on her podcast or on TikTok about how much she made season one, which I think was like, I think she said 7,500 an episode. Let me tell you something about our $3,000 episode starting rate. Um, and it's 20 years after. So I hope the producers, whoever involved, don't take offense to this. When we did the show, I had already had half a decade of TV, film, whatever work behind me. Not just what I did, but my peers, people who created shows. I had the wealth of knowledge of how the industry worked walking in at 23. I might have looked like a child, but I knew what was what. So I knew it was not a lot of money, but I was working, again, for $400 a week. And I was like, I'll take it. But when the show hit... Um, in such a way that we were suddenly on the cover of things, blah, blah, blah. We had these ad sales coming in. Influencers now hold a can of something and they get paid a lot of money to do so. Products that appeared on our show went to the producers and the networks in terms of like the money. We were influencing but did not receive that. We also, in my opinion, with my life that I've done now many shows, we were also producers of our own segments in tandem with the producers, and that was our only negotiating power. So when the show was going to season two, we tried to negotiate, and they said, you're not producers, you can't. And I said, well, then you tell us what to paint the walls. You tell us what to put the guy in. They came up to, I think it was like 7000 an episode and with $500 bumps every year. Now, again, it's 20 years ago. I feel like there's a respectable amount of time to talk money because it's a lesson in queer history and media. And the reason why I say it that way is at that time, and this is important to highlight because it is a part of queer history, every guy except me got seven-figure or high six-figure endorsement deals. We're talking millions. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Companies or people that were the gatekeepers to companies, agents, managers, producers, often told me that I was not marketable because middle America was not ready for Latin, queer, somewhat femme presenting, some might say at that time. And I remember we were going to take a meeting with the agents that represented the Queer Eye brand. They wanted us to sign at their agency. We were new. I already had agents. None of the boys did. So we meet with them as a courtesy. They sat us down, and this may shock you. They give this beautiful presentation. It's great. Fancy office. I could see all of it. Beautiful. And I'll never forget this because, and this is no hate to anyone, but this informed my life. This, I think about this with every booking I get. They, after that initial presentation, Each of us got an agent to sit across from, and that agent was there to pitch us why we should be at this agency. So I'm sitting across from this guy, and I tell him, hey, you know, I'm an actor, and this is what I've done, and I'd like to continue that. And I don't want, you know, me being a part of the show, as incredible as this movement is, to distract from what it is I really do, which this show doesn't highlight. Right. And he looked at me blankly, and he said, I don't know what to tell you. You're not going to be the next Antonio Banderas. And I was saddened that 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 was his only path forward for me or only person I could look to in terms of like a career in the industry as an actor. As much as I love Antonio, I was like that. So I don't want to be him. But you're saying there's nothing. Okay, so I I filed that away. And I was like, but some of the other boys are getting endorsement opportunities. And he's like, I mean, what are we going to do? Like Taco Bell? Like, what could we And when I didn't sign, 
the person who was sort of brokering the whole situation reached out to me. Why didn't you sign with us? And I explained what the guy had said. And he said, oh, well, he's a junior agent. And I said, that's the problem. You didn't value me enough to put me with a senior agent. You put me with a new junior agent because you didn't think I was of value to your agency. And for that reason, I'm out. And that sounded a little Shark Tank, but that's how I felt. Yeah. But, but every time I book a role, every time I'm having a director's session for a big motion picture or something, I think about those words. They haunt me to this day. I'm 43 years old, and I still carry that man's voice. I remember what he was wearing. I remember what the room was like. It was so profoundly impactful because at that time, there was no one I could tell. No one explicitly thought that was a problem and would come and help. It was just like, yeah, yeah, it's, oh, it sucks. Because everyone at that time who was in decision-making positions softly agreed with the sentiment and wasn't willing to be bold and try something new. Carson had a lot of big deals, and that was bold because of the way Carson presents, right? So he got yeah. big endorsement things. And, you know, it was like the you had to be a, a Will or a Great, a Will or Jack, and I didn't fit into that. Um, and so it, it warms my heart. And, and I wanted to share that story today because we are in a different place. Um, I think the big thing we can look at right now is Dylan Mulvaney on TikTok um, doing the whole, I think it's Coors Light ad and you know so many conservative folks are freaking out about this company supporting lgbt i'm like have you been to a pride do you know how many straight brands support pride you know yeah um and i think back in 2003 maybe all of them weren't showing up to the party um but things have shifted in a positive direction where um corporations realize that you know it they want us to be, to be included. And included doesn't mean alienating those who've been there all along. Straight folks are always going to be here. You always got, there's always going to be room for y'all. Yes. You know? And then when, you know, someone says this about Taco Bell, and I mean, like, everyone else is getting these endorsements, what, that you're just like, this is true racism. Like, that was, I mean, it's it, how, it's how it felt. And, you know, doing Spinning Into Butter at Lincoln Center, um, the play about racism on a college campus opposite Hope Davis, I think it gave me a window into what microaggressions look like at an early age, but I didn't have the voice or the tools to say that. And I think I was so frightened, as many entertainers are, to be kicked out or to be ostracized. This was also right around the time that SNL and Mad TV parodied Queer Eye and both highlighted that I was a useless figure on that show. How, how do you hold space for that when you're 24 years old and you see the world mocking you and no one asks, are you okay? Like, how, how are you? You laugh it off. You pretend you're okay. When you don't, when you're trying to push uh, telling your story, because I, I think I have a, a, an interesting story of my upbringing and everything, or wanting to do a book and your agency doesn't even support it, you can't get a lit agent, no one will touch you in the commercial endorsement space because of your identity, not your talent, not what story, because people like you at that time didn't need to be seen. You can be included, but please don't talk too much. Don't take up too much space. And that's that's just, I think, where society was. There were some courageous folks that thought they were doing good just by having me there. When we talk inclusivity and diversity in media, it's not just about hiring people of color or queer folks or LGBTQIA plus folks. 
giving them something important to do. You know, I've been a part of a lot of projects. If it's a queer storyline, I can guarantee number one on the call sheet, cis white gay man. I know. Every script I read, I'm going in for, I'm like, what am I going to play? Like his Latin lover, the guy who messes his bestie. You know, it's, I, I just know that's what's going to be. And so there has been a lot of movement and a shift, but some things oddly remain the same because the gatekeepers kind of see things a certain way. I think now with folks like Joel Kim um, creating pieces like Fire Island and stuff, we're seeing other stories, which, to be honest, I I've been watching queer programming for, what, 25 years since I was 18, movies and TV. Like, I I there's certain stories I've heard. I get it. I'd like to see other people's experiences because I'm curious what life was like for them in the spaces we've shared. And those stories haven't been told enough on camera. So, you know, for me, the growth is, yes, we're visible, but in what way are you giving us something meaningful to do? And do we have financial equity in what we're a part of? You know, I think a lot of people think because I was on Queer Eye that I would be rich from the show. No, like we were paid modestly and maybe appropriately for the time. But there wasn't like this outpouring or like even when I tried to transition into what it is I do for a living now, um, it wasn't like, welcome on in. I took where I off my resume. I grew my beard out, got that tattoos I wanted, things I couldn't do because I had a contract with um, Broadway and TV where you couldn't. And um, and I really figured out who I was here. And then we'll move on because I yeah. sorry. I'm no, 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 no. It's the no, no, no. Blame Listen, it on the no, I'm like, energy. I'm sitting here. So I, I am truly intrigued by everything you're saying. I mean, was did Carson and like the other guys like? Did they know I that you were kind of no? And I feel bad because on the level because we of these were. Things? You know, you could see the comparisons in the new Queer Eye versus the OG Queer Eye. The OG Queer Eye was built, scripted, and shot like a comedy. Um, we actually had a lot of comedy directors. Um, we didn't know the show would have an emotional undertone to it. In fact, when the first straight guy cried, when we do the, okay, we're leaving, don't forget to do this, producer comes in, says, okay, Bob, you know, you're never going to see the boys again if there's anything you want to say. And the first time a guy said, yeah, I just want... It's just, and they got, we laughed because we thought he was joking or mocking us. And we were unaware because there was no precedent that we were connecting with someone who had never had a group of men care about him as a person and look um, into all the details of his life and try to amplify the best parts of him. Um, and that was hitting him in an emotional space. Um, and I think while that was the work, that was also our tone behind the scenes. We were very joking. It was like a fraternity. I often got locked out of the trailer or like the car would scooch up when I try to get in. Tom, um, the interior designer was in a fraternity. So I was very much getting hazed for three years, a hundred episodes, um, of Queer Eye. So we never had emotional moments. I think, you know, some of my waspy cast members probably shy away from emotion, um, at that time. And, and I think this new cast, they're beautifully leaning into it. Um, so I didn't get to share that with them. I think that would have been too emotionally vulnerable. What I did do was a one night only um, Broadway on a Broadway stage um, store, sort of story of my life, Moulin Rouge style, top 40 in Broadway music, the story of my life infused. Rosie Perez played my mother. Um, Carson and Ted both made appearances in it. Um, Carson sang popular when we hit the moment of where I get into Queer Eye. And um, I think that was the first time they got a window in 
to some of the aspects of who I was as a human. But again, not necessarily like heartfelt conversations that I think maybe we could have now. And I think, uh, you know, Lance Bass talks about why it took him so long to come out because he was fearful of how that would impact the group. I think I also share in the sentiment of I didn't want to ever tarnish the queer eye brand by sharing some of the experiences that I had faced. And, you know, the producers of the show have been really supportive and come seen some of my cabaret shows or one cabaret show that I did when I talked about it. I think the title of the show was Straight Out of Queer Eye. And they were probably curious. The new cast was announced. I think they were nervous about what I would share. But if they know me, and I think they do, I never try to disparage. And I think that kept me silent for a lot of years. But I think there's a way to always tell your story in a way that honors your truth and also be respectful and honor that the show was impactful and touched so many people and created opportunity for shows that came after it. And then I know, you know, you say the new cast, like, you know, you know there's no hard feelings. You're the no, brothers. Yeah, we like them. What was it like when you get that call and you're like, you know, wait, oh my God, I'm in my 30s and let me tell I mean, you. And they're like, They Jay. did say you're going to do something with them and we'll find a way to work you in. And I th- felt like, you know, Karamo and I are around the same age. And while I didn't want to go back to like cleaning toilets and giving theater tickets or whatever it was, um, that wasn't, I didn't want to necessarily relive the experience. I think at the 20th anniversary, which we are this year, all five of us for the first time are down, willing, and able to do something together again. Um, if we were a band or a group, we'd probably go play you know, a couple couple concert dates in big venues. Um, but um, only because we have magic when we're together. And I think part of passing the torch, um, it felt really cathartic because I think the show needed Queer Eye when we first came on uh, the scene. And again, the world, you know, with what was happening politically, needed Queer Eye again. Um, And when I met the guys, we had this sit down for People Magazine, their cast and our cast. They were so incredibly gracious. And it really was quite humbling because you do something and it's your job and it's televised. And you don't really know the impact of it until it's not like theater. You don't get applause right away until people share things with you. Yeah. So people who say, oh, my God, I'm sorry, you probably hate this. But I'm like, no, I don't hate it. I I thank you. I'm glad. I thank you for sharing your story. Same thing with the guys. They each shared their stories with each one of us, some of them quite tearfully so. And even at an award show where they were honored or won some award, um, the producer spoke, as they do. And Tan France is one of the cast members. The cast did not get to speak. But he, as they were exiting, said, well, and we want to thank the original Fab Five. We wouldn't be here without them. I'm paraphrasing. I thought, how classy, how classy. Yeah. You know, no one had said that to us up until that point. We went to go to the premiere of the, a screening of the, of the, of the first episode of Queer Eye at the Pacific Design Center. And, you know, we do the red carpet with the boys. We sit in the small theater screening room. That head of Netflix, you know, introduces the producers, introduces the new cast, saves us for last. And he has a stand. And we're all like, oh God, what's going to happen? Do we get a pony? Do we get a car? What's happening? Right. And, He's like, I want us to take a minute, take a look at these guys. Without them, none of us would be here right now. Do you know that was the first time ever, ever, that anyone in a position of power had said anything even remotely close to that to us? No one. And I don't think any of us ever craved it or wanted it or needed it or asked for it. But when you get it, it kind of... It, it, it did make us feel uh, appreciated. Um, I think, you know, I have a lot of friends who work in the scripted space who had shows that were kind of successful in the same time who have things like residuals, who've bought 
you know, homes in Malibu and they're like, you guys don't, I'm like, "Mm -mm." my residual, my commerce, the money, the worth in that is the lives that were changed and the amount of people, thousands at this point who have stopped me from every corner of the earth and say, because of you, it was safe to come out because of you. I got to better understand my uncle, brother, cousin, you know, sister, aunt, nephew. It was, it would, that was the part of, for me that I'm like, eh, it was worth it. And you know, I'm a theater kid. So it's like, we're so used to like, you know, working for nothing and do a lot of work. And, and, and I don't, don't get me wrong. I think, you know, probably queer I paid us probably what, what was appropriate back then. I still wish residuals were a thing, but um, outside of that, I, I will say it was more about the outside work and where society was when I speak about money. And um, because I like that people like Viola Davis and uh, even, uh, uh, sweet Allison Sweetie, what's her name? The girl from Euphoria talked about the money in entertainment. I think people have a very bizarre idea of how that works. I talk about it all the time. Yeah. I think people have, you know, there's George Clooney and mm-hmm. there's Julia Roberts. We have Ellen Pompeo. Like the one percent of Hollywood right. who doesn't have to worry. Right. And the pandemic taught me a lot of people have side hustles behind the scenes that we don't know about. Um, and so, you know, I'm just really thankful that. Um, I'm not defined by the work I do, and you can have peaks, ebbs, ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys, and my worth as a human does not change um, based on how the world at that moment views my relevancy. I'm no longer attached to I need to be on the biggest show. Like I feel like at this point now, being middle aged because 43 is middle aged, um, I'm, I'm right there yeah, with you. Babe. I feel like your quality of life and ha- if you're happy and if you're doing good things in the world, I mean, who cares? Like you may be on, you may do the best work on some show that no one watches and you may get on a show that everybody's watching and you're like, ah, it's okay. You know? So it, you, at the end of the day, have to feel good about yourself when your head hits that pillow. I agree with every, all of that. I say that all the time. I mean, in this industry, mm-hmm. Not everyone gets there, mm-hmm. you know, and most people don't. And I also feel like that's the statement of when I make it, erase that thought. When you get to a space where you get to do work you're proud of, you've made it. Because the idea of like having consistent work where you're going to bounce from gig to gig to gig, I haven't met very many people, even the A-listers, who feel like they're in that place. The big apps, they might have made more money than me and you, might have a little more in the bank to just sit pretty between gigs than the rest of us. But, you know, I think the idea of constantly creating and and being paid equitably is is the goal, but um, it may not always be as consistent as you want in this industry. I agree. I mean, so you were on Malibu Country. Mm-hmm. That was the first. That was the first series regular as a scripted actor for me, and I became the first guy off reality to become series regular on a network show. Right. And so, was it hard to get like a network show or just parts? You know, because like you said, I you was know, someone so saying close so many times. You I are? would just yeah, like I would get a pilot and it would get um, put on hold, and I was like, oh my god, this is gonna be it. I did this show called HMS Harvard Med School with um, Amy. Holden Jones, who created The Resident on Fox, and Megan Boone from Blacklist, the lead female in that. She was the star, and I was like her gay bestie, and it was about first-year Harvard medical students. It was for the CW. It was the year Hellcats and Nikita got picked up, and we were put on hold. In case one of those failed, we were going to jump in, and you know it didn't end up happening, but that would have been two or three years before Malibu Country. So when I got this, I think there was a part of me that thought... 
I've made it. I've legitimized myself. And no one cared. Like, people liked the show, but no one was there with, like, you know, roses and a sash and a crown. And that was my inner story going back to that guy in that room who told me I couldn't and I wouldn't. And there was no room for me in Hollywood. It was the undertone. It did, I, I realized that in, the, in those moments, like, the only person I was fighting with was my inner saboteur, right? And so that taught me a lot. A, working with Reba and Lily Tomlin, first on set, knew all their lines. The energy on set trickles down from, from the top. So if number one and two on the call sheet are prepared and kind and treat everyone graciously, that's the kind of set you're going to be on. And that's the kind of set yeah. I was on. But it was the first time I'd been on a set where a writer's room was writing for me, not that there was a script already that I had to step into. And that was really profound and wonderful. And um, Michael and Mindy, who, who produced the show for ABC, it was it was special. That that was a special moment for me. Um, you know, I mean, I should really give a shout out to Ryan Murphy, who gave me my gave me I auditioned for and got my first big guest star in L.A. was on Nip Tuck. Yes, it was one of oversized the best shows ever. Yeah. It was episode five, season five, when the show moves to L.A. I played this fashion stylist who uh, my bestie was on the show, my bestie, you know, friend, character. Um, Finagle's a free surgery for me. But after that, people were like, hmm, oh, yeah, we'll see him for that. I had a lot of people who would see me as a novelty because they were Queer Eye fans. And then ultimately I would get the part. And then when you're doing episodics, especially guest stars, you got to be on someone's favorite show for them to know you did something, you know, like yeah. I would get on like Bones, but like season eight or something, you know, Grey's Anatomy, but season 14, you know, some people not I watch it anymore. I still watched you on Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm still right yeah. there in Chandelier, but go on. Yeah. So it's, it's funny, but like, I think at that time, especially in my thirties, I was so chasing that so hard thinking I had to like, you know, whatever. Now it's like, I'm just, I think also the self taping, like we don't audition in person anymore. Having the space to just do the audition on my terms at home feels more like on set because on set, you you know, you've got time to prepare and you're, you know, you've had a couple days maybe with with the script. It feels like I can give my best performances. And I think that's why I've had such a busy two years. Um, is I'm just I'm 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 better at home. I don't know. No, I'm I'm I can I can get rid of the um I need to impress someone and I can create the parameters of like sometimes you're across from a casting director and they are just flat as hell and you're meant to be super dramatic in the scene. Um, but I can create that at home, you know? And so, uh, yeah, there's been a shift. I mean, it's, it's wild. Do you, do you credit Ryan Murphy just because of Nip Tuck, I, I, thought I changed. think about him often because he was in my callback and I was so flabbergasted cause I love Nip Tuck and love. I was a diehard fan at the time. And to see him in person, I remember I, my heart was pitter patter. And, you know, he has he has an affinity for putting people with a little novelty or sparkle in his shows that aren't known by the general public to be actors, but can can do it. And I had the pedigree. I was like, I already got the training. I got the skills. People wouldn't let me into the auditions. And once that changed, then I kept getting good auditions and and good bookings of dramatic roles and. And I was like, this is fun, you know, and then I think I found the joy in it when I after Malibu Country, I was like, I felt like, OK, I did it like I was series regular. Now, yes, I want to continue to do that. But if it happens, it happens. Now it's leaning to the quality of life. And, you know, that show, I think anytime you have a big boost in um, momentum, whether it be like on television or anything in entertainment, a lot of charities reach out and you get to find out about a lot of causes who want to you 
you to use your platform to help amplify them. And while I still work for a lot of charities and use my small little social media platform for that and in-person events, when you get the bigger platform and you're able to do bigger media, it you feel so empowered that you get to be a voice for the little person and shed some light on them. And and and, and the, by the way, the little people are doing some of the biggest work. Yeah. Yes and yes. So it really, I, I didn't realize Nip, to, I mean, I know it was one of your early guests. So I didn't realize that that was, it was the, that that was the tipping point here in LA. Yeah. And then shortly after that, I, I, I booked, you know, like uh, all these dramatic roles, like on Bones playing a murderer. And I, I remember booking, this is wild. I remember booking, um, I had to go in, I wanted to go into audition for a Chelsea Handler sitcom and they wouldn't see me because the character was straight, married, had five kids, but moonlit as a drag queen. And they said, well, we know he could do the drag part. We just don't think he's believable as a straight man. And my agent said, one of my clients got a audition time, but he can't go. Just take that show up. And I was like, can I do that? He's like, I mean, technically no, but just what are they going to say to you? They're going to tell you no, go. I went and, you know, they were in their office and they come out and they're like, hi, like, what are you doing here? And I was like, hey, how are you? Good to see you. Um, so I got the sides. I'm like, super excited. So they saw me because they had to. I don't suggest you do this. And I booked it. And I wow. booked it. And, 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 and casting was super gracious and kind, but they said no originally. And, um, you know, so I've had to kind of weasel my way into things. And I think now I'm so thankful to have like a resume where you need to see me play a womanizing cop, I got that. You know, you need to play a fabulous gay, I got that. Murderer, got that. You know, straight bro, gamer, I got that. Like, I have it already. So if people want to come at me and say, you can't, I'd be like, but I did. You did. Were you ever close, like you said, you, know, you had all these pilots and they were, were you ever close to like a part that we all know? Yes. You know? Thanks for listening to part one of our sit down with the one, the only Jay Rodriguez and stay tuned for a part two. We're going to find out what part he almost got. We're going to talk more about Queer Eye, Bravo, Andy Cohn. You know, remember Heather Dubrow was on Malibu Country? We asked Jay about that. He was on Malibu Country as well. We talk about it all. Bros looking. I love this conversation. So stay tuned for part two of our chat with the one, the only Jay Rodriguez. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Behind the Velvet Rope. Because without you listeners, I would just be a crazy person with voices in my head. And if you like what you hear... Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts under Behind the Velvet Rope. And when you're done subscribing, feel free to leave a five-star write-up review because the write-up reviews actually count. We read each and every one of them. We post the best ones and the reviews really help our shows keep going. And we really appreciate everything you guys say, especially the positive ones. And if you want to find us online, we're at Behind Velvet Rope on Instagram. We are at David Yontef on Instagram. We're Behind The Velvet Rope on Apple Podcasts. Or head on over to Patreon because you know what? There are just some things we can't talk about here. So for our bonus episodes, go to Patreon and type in Behind The Velvet Rope. And if you still aren't sick of me, and you want more David, go to Cameo and book me on Cameo. And you can ask me anything there. I'll answer whatever you want. And I have a bargain basement price of $10. Thank you guys. See you soon.